I went to class yesterday, and uh, um, my Old Testament professor had a funny comment about uh, um, the authority of the scriptures. You know, you hear lots of debates among different church groups and different church denominations about the authority of scriptures, about, uh, you know, you see here words like inerrancy and, and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, he said something that seems very simple but very insightful. And he says, uh, if you really want to know about the authority of scriptures in your life, ask yourself this question. When the scriptures come in conflict with your practice, what do you do? Uh, if you truly believe the scriptures are authoritative, then you change. Um, that's, that's how you show a belief in the authority of scriptures. Um, it's easy to say, yeah, I believe the scriptures are authoritative. I believe what Second Timothy says about them. But uh, what happens when my life conflicts with the true, with the plain meaning of the words? Um, evidently, I don't believe they're very authoritative if I don't make a change. Uh, sometimes I need to change what I believe. Sometimes I need to change what I do. And uh, this, uh, this parable might lead us down that path. Uh, uh, Jesus is going to describe uh, something I think that is hard to do, and yet I don't know any believer who walks through the discipleship walk without having to take this step at least one time. Now I'm going to tell a silly story. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen the first Austin Powers movie. Okay. If, if I, I just thought of it uh, very recently. I didn't get enough time for a clip, and the clip wouldn't have really been that helpful to understanding. Do you remember Dr. Evil? He was frozen cryogenically or whatever and back in the 60s, and he's thawed out 25, 30 years later, and he decides to hold the government hostage, and he demands a ransom. Anybody remember how much? One million dollars. And, uh, and then the government officials are all kind of laughing because it's like, well, I guess he's been frozen a long time. That's not as much money as it used to be. Um, well, there's a moment like this in the story where Jesus is going to say 10,000 talents. And everybody who was listening to him would have totally got it. But for you and me, it's like 10,000 talents, what's that? We don't know how much money that is. And yet that's the key to understanding this parable. We need to figure out how much money that is uh, so we can get it. Because this parable is based on a discrepancy between dollar amounts, except they're not dollars. And if you don't know what a denarius is or what a talent is, it's kind of tough to get, to get this one. Uh, so we'll learn. We'll do a little uh, money math today. Remember, this is we're in our second month of studying parables. We want to look for the same, we use the same tools over and over again when we try to determine what they're saying. We want, to, we want to know what was the message Jesus intended for his listeners to hear. Sometimes it's good to ask, what, what message was Matthew trying to get across when he, to his readers when he included this in his gospel? And then ultimately, if we answer those questions well, I think we've got a better chance of answer, answering the question, what message would the Holy Spirit communicate to me today? Look for the surprise. Oftentimes you'll find that the parables will have, that the audience will be leaning one way, and then Jesus surprised them with, with a different conclusion, and that's usually the main idea. And, and I would caution you with parables. Let's try not to turn them into allegories where everything means something. This parable has, there's a particular risk for that in this parable. If we try to give theological significance to everything in the parable, I think we're going to end up missing the mark. Usually there's one main idea, one main point Jesus is trying to make, and you can usually find that in the surprise. Look for the, the uh, good guys and the bad guys. Who in the story does God approve of or disapprove of? And then 
look for the context. Oftentimes these parables are told uh, in answers to questions. Look for the who is the particular audience. In fact, the first parables we've looked at all had kind of uh, hostile audiences. Uh, when we did the parable that we used to call the prodigal son, but we learned a month ago that's not a good name for it. Remember that one, Luke 15? He was talking to a group of Pharisees who didn't think he was keeping good company by eating dinner with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And then the Good Samaritan parable, he addressed an expert in the law that was kind of challenging him on who's really a neighbor. And then the one last week where he told the parable about the one who's been forgiven much, loves much, he was at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Uh, just one individual Pharisee he told this parable to, and I guess all the guests got to hear it. But up to now, his audiences have been very hostile. But who's the audience in this parable? It's Peter, his disciple. It's one of the best friends that Jesus had. Now, at times, Peter was kind of a fair-weather friend, but ultimately he got the job done. When Jesus left the earth, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he, he left Peter with a job to do, and Peter ultimately got it done. And so... This is a parable for the family of God. It's a parable for believers. It's not a parable about salvation. So when we get to the end, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that that's what it's about. And Peter asks his question, how many times should I forgive, in response to the teaching Jesus made in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. The book of Matthew is arranged uh, kind of thematically. Uh, you have about, I think, five different series of discourses where Jesus teaches something and then in between each one of those big teachings, there's some biographical stuff. He does this, he does that, he heals some people, and then another teaching. Does this, does that, heals some people, another teaching. And so Matthew chapter 18 is one of those big chunks of teaching. And in 15 through 20, he teaches how we get along as a family of God, what it means to be, or how we deal with conflict. Being a family, all of us come from families, and, and it would be absurd if I told you that being part of a family means there's no conflict. Everybody who has parents or siblings knows that's outrageous, right? Of course there's conflict. But being a family means you deal with your conflict in an appropriate way. And Jesus gave some instructions for how to do that. I'll go ahead and read 15 through 20. Um, it, it's a four-step plan, so you might want to look for the four steps. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Haven't really seen that much, you know, people ratting out their neighbors to the church. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure what we'd do. I guess we'd, we'd, we'd address it. I guess we've seen that some. I, 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 it happened a few times. <laughs> if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. It's an interesting passage on prayer, and it's oftentimes used in like, you know, you can get what you pray for kind of thing. But this is talking about discipline within a church, uh, where within the church family. Not really about, you know, getting God to get you the good stuff or give you the good stuff. Uh, so I think sometimes we take it out of context or we hear it taken out of context uh, um, in some of those sort of prosperity messages. But the steps are confront the guy alone, confront him with one or two others, tell the church, treat him like a pagan, which in that day meant, you know, kind of separate him or, or consider him separate from the rest of you. Um, in modern times, I can't tell you I've seen that play out very much. 
I, I've heard of modern-day excommunications, but I've, I've never really seen one up close, never been a part of one where somebody said, well, you, you, you went through the few steps and you wouldn't listen to anybody, so now we're going to put you out of our church and we're not going to respond to you. I, I can tell you this, I have been to step two a couple times. Uh, where I've identified him as such. Uh, several years ago, I was a, a, a teacher with some administrative responsibilities at a school, and we had a, a dad who bullied, uh, I felt like, was bullying one of the young female teachers. And uh, you know, different things bring out different sides of you. I, I do my best to veil the dark side, but uh, bullying young women kind of brings that out in me. Uh, and uh, and But yet yeah, we tried to adopt a righteous approach, and the principal was in there with me. And I, and I read this passage, and I said, we're, we're at step two. There are two of us here, and here we're confronting you. This is wrong, um, and we're calling you to stop. And uh, you know, step three or, or step four, I guess, would be putting your kid out of the school uh, was how the, the form it would have taken there. Most of the time in church, you don't get to step four. People, there's a church on every corner. People just separate from each other and go their separate ways if they're having this kind of conflict. That wouldn't really have been an option for them back then. There weren't quite so many choices. But my point is, Jesus made a clear path for continuing in fellowship, even, even recognizing the sinful nature that we all bring with us when we come to, into a church family. And so Peter has a follow-up question. Okay, good deal. So the guy sins against me, you told me how to deal with it. What if he keeps sinning against me? How many times should I forgive him? And oftentimes, notice what Peter does. He asks the question, and then he gives the answer. And have you found that a lot when people ask you questions? They already know you're the right answer you ought to give. I found in my experience, people ask me questions sometimes, and it's not really like they want to know what I, what I think. It's they want to know if I know the right answer or if I'm willing to affirm the answer they've already settled on as the right answer. And uh, uh, I've had a couple of occasions where people would ask my opinion, and then I, obviously I gave the wrong answer. It's like, well, it wasn't really my opinion you wanted, was it? Uh, um, and, and Peter, in this case, thinks he knows the answer, and so he can't even wait for Jesus to say, how many times should I forgive? How about seven? And to Peter's credit, and Peter's defense, he's, he really is being generous for his time, because they had a standard. Um, the, the rabbinical standard is you forgive three times, and the fourth time, they're out. Don't forgive four times. That's too much. Three times is all we're going to forgive. It's in the Babylonian Talmud. When a man sins against another, they forgive him once, they forgive him a second time, they forgive him a third time, but the fourth time, they do not forgive him, which seems generous enough there. A guy keeps doing the same thing three times, they forgive him, but then the fourth time, it's like, ah, oh, he really doesn't want to be forgiven. He's just going to be stubborn and persist in this. And so Peter thinks he's improving that by saying, how about if I forgive a guy seven times? How, that's, that's better, isn't it? And Jesus says, no. Not seven times, but 77. And this is one of those places where we're not sure the translators got it right. It might not have been 77. It might have been 70 times seven. And we're not real clear. And getting the math right on that wouldn't really matter. If it's 77 or if it's 490, I think the message is still plain. It's not like we get to tally up the guy's sins. And when he gets to 491, it's like, oh, you're out now. Or even when he gets to 78, okay, 76, 77, now, now I'm done with you. The clear message here is we're to develop the habit of forgiveness so that we quit counting. I can't imagine. It seems like it would be an interesting thing to depict on film. Somebody who's got their little tally marks of sins and like, you know, we could kind of make a list of all the people in our family and all the people in our in our circle of acquaintances, and we have like a different chart for each one, how many sins they're up, up to. But uh, 
Obviously, that's not what Jesus wanted us to do. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says that says it's wrong to count. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. So Jesus is not saying it's okay to keep track when they get to 78, cut them off. Jesus is saying forgive, forgive past three, forgive past seven, develop the habit, freely forgive. And then he tells this story to illustrate the parable. And the story, we've just heard it read. I'll rush through it. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, the value of 10,000 talents is key to understanding the parable. Um, 10,000 talents is like one of those crazy numbers that's so high that, that it's, 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 it's a hard to grasp. Like when I'm trying to, to use hyperbole to talk about a huge amount of money, I'll, I'll make up a word. I'll call it a gazillion which isn't really a word. My Uncle Gene used to say a blue jillion. I don't know where that came from, but I heard it ever since I was a little kid. He would do whenever he wanted to say, you know, an astronomical sum of money, that was his word. Well, 10,000 talents, that's, that's when Jesus says that, his audience is hearing, you know, more money than I can ever dream of. Um, I'll try to show you some math. Remember, a denarius was a day's wage for one worker, one, one laborer's day's wage. A talent is 6,000 denarii. Um, if, if a, so if a denarius was one day's pay, a talent would be about 17 years' pay for a laborer. Now, I guess a rich guy you know, would get paid higher. And so that's one talent. So uh, 10,000 talents would have been upwards in... in the problem with, with doing modern equivalencies is with inflation, by the time a book gets published, it's already obsolete. Uh, so at least $2 billion is what we're talking about. We're not talking about like, well, if I, if I tighten my belt and save a little bit over the next few months, I'm going to get this paid off. This guy is in debt way beyond his ability to pay back. And in fact, even naming it at $2 billion is not high enough because we can picture a rich guy who might be able to come up with that. So it's really higher than that. It's beyond his ability to ever come up with it on his own. It's hard to imagine how he got into that kind of debt. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That sounds harsher than it really is. We can't imagine selling somebody's kids to pay off a debt nowadays, and we don't have debt slavery or, or debt imprisonment nowadays. But 2,000 years ago, debt slavery was very common. Uh, in fact, slavery was very common in the Roman Empire. About a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. It wasn't like slavery in the American South where one ethnic group were slaves in perpetuity and their kids. You could get into slavery because of money problems or because your country lost a war. Those were the common ways to, to become a slave back then. And you were allowed in certain parts of the world to pawn your children to pay off a debt or to sell them into slavery to pay off a debt or to sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. Uh, and yet it wouldn't accrue to their descendants. It was a way to solve your money problems or try to solve your money problems today. So that was the, the, the justice of the time would be to seize the guy's family, sell them into slavery, to do what they could. You can't get two billion bucks for a guy and his family, but, but you can get some. Putting people in prison back then wasn't nearly as common as it is today. Uh, for you know, We imprisoned people for a wide variety of offenses. Many more offenses would have carried the death penalty back then, so, so jail would have been much more of a temporary thing. And imprisonment for debt was based on this th sort of threefold plan. If the guy's hiding money, he'll come off it to get out of jail. 
If his family can come up with any money, they'll come up with it to get him out of jail. Or if there's no money to be had, you know, he kind of essentially stole it from the from the creditor, and so he, you know, he got what he deserved. So that was kind of the justice of the day. So take a look at this guy's repentance, because to me, I think it's kind of key that he doesn't repent very well. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Let's take a look at that for a minute. Is that sincere? I mean, the guy's lying really on top of, of, of taking the master's money. Patience isn't going to give this guy the opportunity to pay back 10,000 talents. He's, he's not going to be able to pay it back. There's, there's not the opportunity. There aren't any jobs available in, in Jesus' day or any investments that are going to be profitable enough for this guy is going to be able to come up with the money he owes. And, and so for him to say, oh, just give me a little more time and I'll get it covered, that's, that's just insincere. It's not really accurate repentance. And yet the master's reply is remarkable. The master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Notice what he did. He didn't refinance the loan. He didn't reschedule the payments. He canceled the debt. Even in the face of this guy's kind of arrogant, insincere repentance, just don't make me pay, the master cancels his debt. This is a picture for God the Father and his forgiveness of you and me. We all are in the same spiritually bankrupt state where you might measure your sins against the next guys and think you're doing okay. Against God's standards of holiness, you owe 10,000 talents or more, every one of us. And the master canceled our debt. That's clearly the, the, what this is a metaphor for. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. 100 denarii, that's a significant debt. It's not like the guy owed him a quarter. Um, it's, it would be... If you're figuring a denarius, a, a, a one day's work, it's about three days' pay. Uh, the same book that said that uh, 10,000 talents was $2 billion says that three months' pay is $3,000 or 100 denarii. So obviously, we still need to inflate those figures some, right? But three months' pay, that's a serious debt. It's not like, oh, forget it, you know, buy me lunch next time. Um, it's, a, it's a serious debt, but it doesn't compare to 10,000 talents. That's the idea. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Deja vu up to that point, except till we get to the answer. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay off the debts. Obviously, the people who are watching this don't like it. Verse 31, the other servants saw what had happened. They were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? His ang in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is the part of the parable where people get hung up a little bit and denominations will, will squabble over this, over what's, that, what's the meaning of that torture and, and what's that mean when this, it says this is how your father will treat you. You do, can you forfeit God's forgiveness? If you've already received God's forgiveness, can you now forfeit it by f refusing to forgive your brother? Um, I think this is where we should be aware of trying to give theological import to every little thing. Remember, this parable is not about salvation. It's a parable for the family of believers. Jesus is telling this to Peter, and I believe what he's saying to Peter is, you're going to create torture for yourself. And once salvation comes... Does that mean we get to skip through life 
on easy street whistling a happy tune until we go to heaven? Or have any of you noticed that there might be a little bit of torment along the way? Um, and, and yet, uh, and I've, I've seen this a little bit. Uh, there, there are some rather successful ministries, I would think, that would teach that's what happens. You know, you, you come to Jesus and smooth sailing from then on. It would be nice if I could tell you that's what, I've, what the Bible teaches, but I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And it uh, hasn't really been my experience. Um, and yet I think what Jesus is telling you, what, what Jesus is telling us, is we can make our lives less peaceful and more tortured this side of heaven by failing to forgive. I would describe to you that unforgiveness is a prison of your own design and you hold the keys in your hand. Uh, um, another old reference, uh, anybody, um, I, I know many of you are way too young to know the Andy Griffith Show, but maybe you saw it on Nick at Night or TV Land. Do you, do you, do you remember the Mayberry Jail? Raise your hand if you can remember that. I don't know if I'm connecting with anybody here. Um, how did Otis the drunk get into jail? He let himself in. He had too much to drink. He knew he was out of hand. He'd go grab the keys off the wall, open the, the cell. He'd get inside, close it behind him, and he'd hang it up where he could reach it when he sobered up the next day. Um, that's unforgiveness. It's a prison, no doubt, but it's a prison that you hold the keys to. Um, I've heard this thing several times. The last time I heard it, it came from Morris, when you choose to not forgive somebody, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Um, that's, that's what unforgiveness does. It torments your soul, and it really doesn't do anything to the guy you're resenting. You know, he might even be dead. He could be long gone. Uh, he's getting off scot-free, and you're still, you're still paying the penalty for his wrong. I like the way S.I. McMillan said it. The moment I start hating a man, I become his slave. He even controls my thoughts. I can't escape his tyrannical grasp on my mind. When the waiter serves me steak, it might as well be stale bread and water. The man I hate will not permit me to enjoy it. And whenever I teach on forgiveness, I, 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 sometimes in a room this size, there are people who have been I know been through horrible things. And you might be tempted to say, but you don't know what I've been through. And my answer is right, I don't know, but Jesus knows, and he's the one that taught this. This is his teaching. You might say the guy doesn't deserve to be forgiven, and I would say to you that's absolutely right. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven, but neither do I, and neither do you, and yet we have all been forgiven. The gulf between my righteousness and God's holiness is wider than the gulf between my righteousness and the guy who hurt me. And if I can receive that forgiveness and understand what I've received— that will empower me to turn around and extend forgiveness to the guy who's wronged me. Oftentimes people want to stumble on forgiveness because they misunderstand it and they think it's something that it's not. Forgiveness is not ignoring a wrong. We serve a God of justice. Forgiveness is not making excuses for the wrong. It's not like, oh, that's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. It's wrong. If it's wrong, it's not okay. Forgiveness isn't the same as trusting. Notice, nowhere in the parable do they loan the guys more money. Uh, they, they've canceled the debt. Um, I, I had a conversation with a guy a few years ago where I feel like he'd been reckless. And I, I used this metaphor. It was like a word picture. He said, so I feel like I was riding in a car with you and you were reckless and you, and you crashed it. I forgive you. It hurt, but I forgive you and God's healed me. But I'm not willing to get back in the car with you. Um, and so forgiveness is... is is commanded by Scripture, and it doesn't have to be earned. 
Trust is different. Forgiveness does not require you to give the guy the car keys again or to jump back in the vehicle with him or loan him more money. Um, trust takes time. Forgiveness does not. Forgiveness is a decision. Trust, trust is earned over time. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. Sometimes that's not up to you. Um, sometimes you might choose to forgive somebody for how they've harmed you, and the state of Florida might say, well, that's fine. You Christians can forgive each other, but, but dude's got a debt to pay to society. And that's not, you know, that's not always up to you either. Reconciliation may not be appropriate. It may not be possible. It may not be up to you. The other person who you need to forgive may not even be interested in reconciliation. They're, all these don't go together. But the main thing you need to know about forgiveness is it's not optional. This isn't some fringy doctrine that comes out of some obscure teaching by Jesus, and maybe it means something else, maybe it means this. Forgiveness is all over Scripture. What is it? It's just canceling the debt. The picture that God gave, that Jesus gave us in the, in the parable is what it is. When somebody sins against you, in terms of justice, they owe you. They've wronged you. If you took them to civil court, what would the jury give? They'd give you money because they owe you for the wrong they did. And forgiveness is choosing to cancel that debt. Okay, I recognize the wrong. You do owe me. The bill's paid. That's what Jesus did for us on Calvary. It's what we can choose to do. And it's all over Scripture. A couple quick verses on it. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's in Ephesians 4. It's in Colossians 3. I'll read those for you. The Lord's Prayer, you know this part, right? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. When Paul's writing about it, notice he includes a key phrase in Ephesians and Colossians. He says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Our model for forgiveness is the forgiveness we receive from Jesus. Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So if we were going to sum it all up today, we'd sum it up this way. The source of forgiveness is God. The refusal to forgiveness is very costly. And the secret of forgiveness is grace. Now I'd like to end a couple different ways. I've got a couple quick stories to tell. One from history and one from my own life. And then I'd like to kind of walk you through a little step by step. Uh, and some of you may find that this is going to be harder for you than what you can do in, in three or four minutes at the end of a church service on a Sunday. And if so, you know, I, I know where to find help. I've, been, I've seen people walk through these steps after horrible instances of, of wrong. And uh, I've, been through, I've been through forgiveness on both angles. I've, I've been the guy needing forgiveness, asking for forgiveness and receiving it uh, from other people. I've been the guy who's extended forgiveness. So I think I can help you walk through some of this. Um, Corey Tinboom, uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with her in the book *The Hiding Place*. Okay, um, Corey Tinboom was a victim of the Holocaust. She wasn't Jewish; uh, she was a Christian. She and her dad and her sister Betsy um, lived in the Netherlands, and they gave refuge to Jews during the Nazi occupation during World War II. And they were caught, and they were all three taken off to Nazi concentration camps for helping the Jews. Her dad died in one camp. Corey and Betsy were uh, imprisoned in Ravensbrück Prison, where Betsy got sick and died, which a lot of people, some of them were executed you know, quicker. The, the conditions were so, so horrible, many of them got sick and died like Betsy did. Years later, Corey Ten Boom writes her book, The Hiding Place, describing her experience, and she becomes quite a famous Christian author, and she goes around on tours 
uh, speaking about her experience. And at one of her speaking engagements, she's talking about God's forgiveness, God's grace, and all that stuff. Guy comes up to her after the, the speech and says, uh, Fraulein Ten Boom, I was really glad to hear your message today. Uh, I, I was a German soldier during World War II, and I, I've become a Christian since, and God's forgiven me. And uh, in fact, I was, she recognized him. He had been a guard at Ravensbrück Prison. Um, and he said, and I, I, I appreciate your message of God's forgiveness, and I'd like to ask you to forgive me too. And he held out, held out his hand to her. And so uh, this is kind of you know, where your beliefs, where your, where your walk has an opportunity to match your talk or not. And she said in that moment she prayed, and her prayer was that God would forgive her. She said, God, I don't want to forgive this guy. And I, mean, I can totally understand that. He doesn't deserve it. There's, and yet she's at this crossroads where she's just been teaching about forgiveness, and now here the guy is facing her, you know, one of her most hated enemies, asking for forgiveness. And she says, God, forgive me. I do not want to forgive this man. And yet she felt like crying out to God for help in that time he met her. And the Lord gave her the grace to be able to extend her hand, shake his hand, and forgive him. And she's able to say it. You know, God has forgiven you, and so have I. Uh, so that, to me, that's a pretty cool story. And she writes about that in her book, or either The Hiding Place or the sequel to it. The other story is a little more personal for me. Uh, my dad died two and a half years ago. And uh, the reason I, I tell you this story is I think this unforgiveness thing has the most serious possibility to hurt you long into your life if the person that you're having trouble forgiving is old and, and is old enough that might, they might die without it. Um, when my dad died, um, and some of this is just temperament, but I was able to, to preach the message at his funeral. I was able to talk about it on Sunday. Um, it was very sad to me that he had a, a very painful end. You know, from the surgery to the death, he had eight months of just torment from the cancer. Uh, and so when the death came, it was somewhat of a relief, actually. But he's a believer. You know, he's not suffering now. He's in heaven. And, and the reason it was easy for me to talk in such a matter-of-fact way about the blessings of God, you know, the week that he died, was because there was nothing between us. And yet there had been. You know, there was, I needed my dad's forgiveness for instances, episodes of my, my youth. And there were episodes where I needed to extend forgiveness. And the point I want to make is we talked through all of that. You know, we'd been through it, um, and, and whether he was willing to or not, I needed to be. And that's the reason I can report to you that when he died, it wasn't like you, sometimes you see people and they just seem to be falling apart beyond what, what, what's normal. I think that comes sometimes from unresolved stuff. And so I strongly urge you, if you're holding on to stuff against your parents, you know, let go of that. That's the thing you might want to focus on early while there's still time, because if they die and you still got that stuff. I mean, ever, anybody ever read Louis Anderson's uh, book called Letters to My Dad? Oh, it's, it's not a Christian book, and it's pathetic. It's, the sad, it's one of the saddest things I ever read. And this guy is just, he tells stories of just standing at his dad's tombstone, bawling. And, and my point is, it's a lot easier to do if they're still around, you know, where you can talk to them. Now, when you're asking forgiveness, I think it's more important to be there face-to-face. -face. When you're extending forgiveness, I don't think that's necessary. In fact, you might stir up more trouble than you, than you wanted to solve by saying, hey, I forgive you, and they're like, what for, you know? Uh, so you can forgive unilaterally all on your own. And I'd like to talk about the step-by-step, -step and, then, and then we'll finish up. Charles Stanley suggests that you take an empty chair and sit across from it and talk to the person you're forgiving as if they were there. 
Name it. This thing you did was wrong. Identify the hurt. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend like it's there. It's almost like you're writing up the bill. You know, you, you did this thing that was wrong. It hurt me this way. And then cancel the debt. You know, then tear it. Write it down if you need to. This thing, let's think of an easy example. You know, you lied about me to my boss, and that cost me a promotion, and that was wrong. And yet, the debt's paid. Cancel the debt. Choose to forgive. Here's something I found. You might need to repeat those steps. Repeat them as often as necessary. Um, at some point, I think the Holy Spirit will help you, help it come from your head to your heart. You might need more help than this. Um, if you do, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. I, I've been, I, I've walked through uh, this with some people, and I know people who are you know, well-trained in this. Uh, if, it may be, may be more than you can do. Some of you have had years of stuff to, to let go of. It may be more than you can do in a few minutes at the end of a church service. Let's go ahead and do that now. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. You know, I, I did this thing where I asked you to close your eyes last week, and I'm going to ask you to do it again now. And this, you know, this might revo- remind you of a like an evangelistic altar call, <laughs> um, but I'm not going to go on the road and become an evangelist. But I'm going to do this thing I've seen at those crusades because I think it'll help me to pray and kind of help me to know how to end. So would you bow your heads as if to pray, and would you close your, close your eyes, please? And if, as we've been talking about this, if there's a, a, a person who's come to mind for you um, that you need to forgive, um, would you just slip your hand up? Okay, put it back down. Now, if you've known about this for quite some time and have even made the attempt to forgive, but it's, it's still there, uh, would you put your hand up? Okay, now put it back down. Now open your eyes, please. Um, if you put your hand up, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you right now. And, and uh, as we worship, I would encourage you to, to try to take these steps. Uh, as we go back to worship, I'd invite you to stand, and I'll pray. Holy Spirit, you saw all that. You knew it before. Lord, I ask that you would help each person in the room to make the decision. Lord, I ask that you would help our hearts to follow our heads. Um, Lord, help us to, to receive the forgiveness you've extended to us. And Lord, help us to escape this torment by letting go of the people who've wronged us. Lord, help us to learn how to cancel the debts uh, just as you canceled ours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.